The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org, an online educational platform dedicated to the history and legacy of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation and special effects. The website is run by Dr. Alex Sargent and Dr. Christopher Holliday, and you can access a whole range of archives of blog posts and podcasts just like these on a range of movies, TV shows, games, uh, card games, um, and creative reflections from practitioners all around the world. If you'd like to contribute a blog post, check out the website and click on the How to Contribute tab and you'll see the instructions there. This episode was recorded in remote circumstances due to the ongoing situation, so please forgive any blips or um, issues with the sound quality. It's a listener choice, so I hope you enjoy it and do participate in the next listener choice, which you'll hear more details about on the podcast to come. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the show. Come gather round, people, wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Uh, my alias this week is Alex Sargent. Um, and my secret identity this week is Chris Holliday. Uh, and we're speaking in, in such vernacular because of course this is our themed episode around uh, comics and uh, graphic novels. We might get into the difference between the two if indeed there is any. Um, and we've chosen, well you have chosen, Watchmen to sort of... Um, analyzes a case study to explore some issues around adaptation, uh, mediality, cross-mediality, transmediality, and any other kind of mediality I can be bothered to think about. Uh, it's an interesting movie, um, and the relationship between comics and fantasy is, is a sort of um, rich and, and, and healthy one, and we can get into that. Um, it's sort of writ large, certainly in American literature, the story of comics and the story of fantasy are intertwined. So if with, with my fantasy hat on, as Chris likes to say, um, I've got lots to talk about. How about you, Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a film that's, that's heavy in its visual effects, but I think it, it sort of raises bigger questions. One, about um, Hollywood in the in the sort of first decade of the 21st century, um, but also uh, this kind of idea of, of style and, and un, uncanny hybrids and uh, the place of, of a film like Watchmen between live action and animation, which is obviously something that we've we've talked about, I think, on previous episodes. But also, you know, it, it raises bigger questions about uh, the printed page and the filmed frame and all these kinds of things. So, um, yeah, lots to say and, and excited to get going. And we're joined by our very special guest, uh, Dr. Drew Morton, who is Associate Professor of Mass Communication um, at Texas AMN University. Uh, Drew is the author of a number of chapters and books on, on comic books, comic book uh, culture, comic book adaptation, including um, a recent uh, book, which I believe, Chris, was reviewed very favourably on our website um, a few months ago. Yes. Um, panel to the screen. Uh, Drew, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we've got a lot to talk about uh, with Watchmen, and it was a sort of uh, an, a good one to choose. A lot of people on our Reddit community um, were, were th- really up for us to talk about it, and it and it kickstarted the debate before even the podcast. It seems to be, from my diagnosis, it's a bit of a, uh, a contested film as to whether it's good or bad. Some people seem to think it's the best comic book adaptation ever made. Some people think it's atrocious. Um, and I'm going to read out just one user comment from Reddit which I think might start us off on this issue of adaptation and what on earth is a comic book movie and how can we define it in scholarly terms. And this is what a user uh, clinging to the cross who suggested Watchmen and to use their words, 
Um, uh, Watchmen really captures the feel um, of the comic book with many of the exact same shots from the comic book series used. If you're doing an adaptation, it needs to be roughly the same as the original and needs to have a similar feel to it. But there are many good comic book movies that are not good adaptations and there are some that fall in the middle. So with that in mind, is this a good comic book adaptation or is this a bad comic book adaptation or is more likely somewhere in between the two? I, that, that's a really difficult question in some ways because I think a lot of it has to do with the moment that the film was released, right? So I was I was going back and I was thinking about when I first saw Watchmen and when it was first announced and what the what the criticism at the time said. So my my history with this was essentially I got drawn into this book project uh, that that was my dissertation and eventually became panel to the screen uh, when the uh, what Sin City adaptation came out in what 2005 2006 yeah and you know there were all these other comic book movies coming around around that time and most of them were kind of like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man or Chris Nolan's Batman where you know they were adapting or loosely adapting um, storylines but they weren't really dealing with the visual component of, of comic books right they weren't trying to adapt the artistic style um, they weren't trying to adapt the medium uh, they were just adapting plot material and uh, I thought Sin City was kind of interesting that way. And then, of course, 300 came out and I was like, you know, Zack Snyder's from Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. And there was a certain kind of like, hey, I'm kind of interested in what this guy's doing. These movies look really interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. So it was announced that he was doing Watchmen. And my wife and I were at Comic-Con that year. And the line to all age was insanely long and it was really, you know, anticipated and they showed the footage and they showed the first trailers. And I remember sitting with, you know, film critics in that, in that panel and they were excited and fans were excited. And, you know, I, I felt like everyone was fairly positive on uh, Zack Snyder and Watchmen and the movie came out and I, I had been invited to an early uh, press screening that MTV was doing where Zack Snyder was going to come out and talk about it. And the audience was very receptive to it and they were excited. Um, the movie comes out, Ebert gives it four stars and he wow. talks about how it's up there with the dark Knight with regard to being this really fantastic um, alternative to things like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. And I don't think he was particularly critical of them, but he was also like, this is a movie for adults essentially. This is a movie that's much more thoughtful about what superheroes represent and what they do and the actions they take and the philosophies they hold than a lot of other superhero movies. Um, so I feel like at the time, the critical community, bloggers, comic book fans, they were all very happy with Watchmen. Hmm. And I think over time given Zack Snyder's later films, given how comic book movies have evolved over the last 10 years or so, I think Watchmen has kind of fallen off the, the kind of pedestal of better comic book movies. Um, and I, I would say that that kind of, I, I share that belief. When I first saw it, I really enjoyed it. I saw the theatrical cut two or three times. We could talk about the different edits if you want. Um, I saw the director's cut, which I thought was slightly better. Um, when I was doing the dissertation, I watched the Black Freighter material, but I didn't actually watch it in the context of what became the ultimate cut, the three and a half hour version. <laughs> um, and, and that's the version I watched last night. And I was like, yeah, this really doesn't work. There's pieces of this movie that just do not work. 
But at the same time, I'm like, I, Zack Snyder didn't really have a formula or a recipe to mimic at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So part of me is like, he's trying to do new things. And I think, I think in certain ways, the Watchmen movie is about five to 10 years ahead of its time. And we can, we can talk about that if you want, as we go on. But I think one of the reasons it's had this kind of change in the way it's received is because we expect different things of comic book movies now that we did in what was it, 2009 when it came out? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that I immediately want to um, metaphorically pin you down and ask you based on what you just said. Um, <laughs> because I, and I know that your your work, um, you know, and I think that the idea of adaptation is, is interesting. You said that it's not just about adaptation the storyline, it's about kind of taking on to, I guess, the spatial and temporal arrangements of, of the comic book image and using that and obviously very famously Watchmen and, and Sin City as well, kind of using the, the comic book panels as, as sort of storyboards. But um, that thing about it being a forgotten or, or sort of has slipped through the cracks a little bit. Um, and I just, I guess I, you know, I'm p- kind of picking your brains a little bit here, but I tried to do a little bit of research into that first decade of the 2000s. So, and this is something that we've, we've kind of talked about previously about those sorts of two waves of, um, kind of superhero style comic book adaptations at, uh, at the beginning of the 2000s and then the sort of post Iron Man lot. Um, and it seems like from the from the comparisons that you've just drawn up, you have this sort of early 2000s with those Sam Raimi films and, and um, relatively successful, but then increasingly less so like Catwoman and, and obviously Daredevil and Elektra and all those kinds of things. Um, uh, and then you have towards the end of that first decade, you have Watchmen, from 2009 um but the year before you have uh a movie superhero movie which is a kind of airplane jerry zucker leslie nielsen spoof of the 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 decades early films and then basically from 2008 2009 onwards you have this increase in um you know iron man 2 jonah hex kick-ass the losers scott pilgrim captain america tinting you know it sort of goes nuclear after that um and so but it seems like watchman is on that sort of it's part of that sort of second wave and has ultimately become subsumed by um, the sort of Marvel machine. But it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it as a film that has sort of slipped away um, based on the fact that perhaps um, Snyder didn't know there was no, as you say, a template for what he was trying to do. So is that, I mean, do you think that kind of 2008, 2009 period is really critical for understanding Watchmen as an adaptation? Here's, here's what I would say about that. I think, if you if you want to like try to do like a Tom Shots type of you know breakdown of the different movements in a comic book genre, right? Yeah. You start off with what with Shots, he's got the experimental stage, right? Um, it's the first stage where like a genre is trying to find its iconography and its different um, you know plot formulas and its different character types. If you go back and you look at the '70s Superman movie and the '90s Batman movies, that's basically your experimental stage. Right. Right. If you watch that early Richard Donner Superman movie, it's a weird movie. <laughs> like there's a musical sequence in the middle of it. Uh, another one that would go into this uh, this mix with Batman and Superman, I think, would be Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, where it's essentially like a Stephen Sondheim musical for half the movie. It's yeah. it's a weird movie. They don't really know how these things are supposed to fit together. So with Donner's Superman, you start off with this one, you know, the sci fi set piece. Then it becomes Norman Rockwell. Then there's, I, I think, a dance sequence in the middle of it. Um, when he's flying around with Lois Lane. But essentially, they're kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And the Batman movies in the 90s are definitely doing that, right? Because the first Tim Burton one goes way too dark. 
it scares well no the, the first one's kind of on the edge where it's dark yeah. and violent and i remember ebert's review was something like kids should not see this movie this is terrifying <laughs> um and it's funny now because we look at it and it's kind of campy and goofy um, but at the time, that was viewed as being serious and dark. And then Batman and or Batman Returns comes out, and it's even more serious and dark, and costs Warner Brothers some merchandising opportunities. And then the pendulum goes the other way, where it's like, okay, we need comic book movies to be more joyful and colorful, and they need to resemble kind of those 1960s comic books that we got with, you know, or or television shows like the Batman 66 show. So I feel like throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're figuring out what this template is. Yeah. And then the first film that kind of gets it and gets it well are the Brian Singer X-Men movie in, is it 99 or 2000? Yeah, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And the the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. And they kind of figure out, you know, the first movie's supposed to be the origin story. You introduce one villain, you know, that's it. Then you keep going, right? Yeah. Um. And they're complicated a little bit throughout the 2000s. So if you get to, you know, you got shots as experimental stage. So we go 70s and 90s to early 2000s. Classical starts with around 2000 with uh, Spider-Man and X-Men. And then you get the refinement for shots, which is when you start to change it up and, you know, bury the formula, introduce new elements to kind of keep it fresh. And I really think it's not the Marvel movies that do that as much as it's the Nolan movies. Because right. I think Nolan's use of things like heat and film noir and kind of doing the more grounded and realism approach, owes yeah. more, I think he did it first. And so people started to mimic that. So Watchmen comes out at this time when Nolan's starting to vary the formula and Iron Man's coming out and kind of on the coattails of trying to kind of do both the classical and the refinement, right? We're going to make it a little gritty, but not, you know, to the point of... Uh, really turning people off. Um, But Watchmen, the movie, I think skips a step. I think just like the Watchmen comic, the Watchmen film is really deconstructing and pointing out a lot of the, the kind of the lot of, a lot of the tropes of the comic book genre film. Right. And what's different about them is that the comic book comes out 40 years after you know, Batman and 45 years, 46 years after Batman and Superman debut. So the audience that's been reading comics knows those attributes really, really well, right? They know what the origin story looks like. They know um, how superheroes work if they read comic books. Yeah. The audience of a comic book movie to get a Watchmen movie after like five years of comic book movies, considering that most of the audience for comic book movies doesn't read the comics. I think they were looking at this movie and they're like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Right? These heroes are are psychologically challenged. They don't succeed. They fail. They're, they're, you know, they're psychologically um, repressed in these weird ways. And I I think basically there wasn't a literacy comparable to that in comic books with that 45 year kind of history when Watchmen came out in 2009. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because what you'll seem to be saying um, is that part of the process of sort of of adapting or, or use the words in your writing remediation, which I'd like to get onto at some point, because I think there's an interesting distinction to be made there. But certainly bringing these um, comics to life on the big screen is is getting audiences familiar with it. And part of that process of familiarization is to sort of blend it 
um, with with genre conventions that are uniquely cinematic, whether that be sort of film noir or sci-fi or, you know, action adventure, things that, that sort of have their own established lexicon and somehow finding a way of bringing the two together. Certainly the, 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 the you know, the Batman examples that the, uh, the you were citing there seem to do that. And, and the, even the failed attempts of trying to do that with other things, musicals, um, all this kind of stuff. So, and I was struck watching Watchmen that, you know, every 20 minutes, at least in the first sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, it felt like a different film genre. You know, it sort of jumps between sci-fi, film noir, or this kind of stuff. And is that, is that do you think, a, a, is that part of the story of, of adapting something as complex as Watchmen or even just a comic book in general, that it needs to somehow blend its own unique visual language with the, with the visual language of cinema and genre? Well, I, I think some of those shifts that you're noticing in the Watchmen film are definitely in the book. Whereas, right. you know, like you get the the Dr. Manhattan story, which has a very different tone, uh, even if it's aesthetically similar, because it's always the three by three breakdowns predominantly in the Watchmen uh, comic, right? Uh, the colors and the layouts are similar, but in terms of tone and voice, uh, especially with the use of voiceover, um, in both the film and the the book, I think you do get these kind of different genre moments. Um, but I mean, what am I, I can't th- help but think of the work that Henry Jenkins did um, when he was looking at vaudeville in what, like the twenties and thirties, where he essentially says, anytime there's this moment where there's something really cool going on culturally and cinema wants to adapt to it, they have to like introduce it and deal with it in its own terms. And so you get these weird ruptures where essentially he's writing about vaudeville and he's like, you know, this movie doesn't make sense. It it fundamentally changes the structure when you have to have scenes that aren't based around character or psychological motivation, but they're based around, you know, a set piece or a gag. Right. And I think those, those, those things come out of this relationship between comics and film as well, where they're not necessarily the most compatible art forms, even though they're both visually dominant. Right. So they get, there are some kind of seams that you can see, and there are some um, moments where the, the edges don't flush together. And I think that can be really interesting. Whereas, you know, cinema's dealt with literature and play adaptations and musicals for far longer than it's really dealt with comic books. That's interesting. Could you flesh that out a bit, in, in, perhaps with examples of Watchmen? Like, what? So, what? What is it about a comic that some or the features of the comic that are actually quite tricky to to turn to cinema? Because obviously, I think you know, from a lazy outsider and as someone that's never re- really read a comic other than Asterix in his life, um, they seem, <laughs> you know, on, on a superficial level, they can seem quite similar. And I expect some readers would 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 you know simply you know you've got a storyboard there and then so what what is what is the difficulty of adapting a a, um, a comic well I, do you want me to answer with regard to comics generally or at or uh, watchmen specifically because i feel like watchmen brings out its own very unique problems because of the way it kind of rethinks the comic book form well let's that we got time let's deal with both okay all right so i think if you're talking about comic books generally there is a very different conception of time and space in a comic book. And this can change depending on what era of comic book you're looking at. So I I remember about 10, 15 years ago, I was at SCMS and someone did a breakdown of how action sequences are staged in comic books. I wish I remembered who it was because it was a great talk. 
And essentially he looks at a sequence in Fantastic Four from like the 1960s and a sequence from Fantastic Four from the 2000s. And in the 1960s Fantastic Four, you have much more of a highlight on key moments. So essentially the team is like getting into the, I can't remember the name of the ship in Fantastic Four, but they get in the rocket ship and they take off and it's maybe one page where you get one panel of them entering the rocket, one panel of them seatbelting themselves in, one panel of the countdown, one panel of the launch, and at the bottom of the page, they're already on to the next planet, right? It's very compressed, right? It's very elliptical. It's this highlight of just key moments in the process of the rocket taking off and going to the planet that they need to go on for their mission. The 2000s comic books decompress. And so you'll have a very similar moment in terms of narrative where a character has to get from one place to another, but that same kind of rocket launch moment takes up like six pages because there's much more of a s- emphasis in the later comic books on visual spectacle. Not that there wasn't in early comic books, but much more on we must spell out every you know piece of the stage. We must highlight the, the smoke plumes coming out of the rocket ship. Um, we're going to use things like Adobe... Uh, Photoshop to add motion blur to Superman, right? And just like this, this attention to detail in later comics that seems to me much more cinematic than early ones. Early ones, it was about catching these very provocative moments, whereas mm-hmm. later comic books become a little more, um, I guess, linear and and less. There's less of a, a temporal gap if you're using Scott McCloud, right? Where you have to provide closure. It's much more cinematic that way. So is that is that because of cinema? I know again, I'm not a comic book person, um, hence why we've got you on the podcast, Drew. Um, but but certainly, I know from some, some histories of fantasy that, like you know, the sort of you know the early fantasy novellas and and strips like Conan and stuff like that, the weird tales stuff was was kind of developed to try and give um, audiences a low cost version of of cinema, and then. So you've got to, and then when the sort of sword and sorcery genre hits in the sort of mid twentieth century, it's an attempt to to capitalize on the comics. So there's a give and take relationship there. Is that what's happening in in superhero comics, or is it something else that I, that I'm oblivious to? It's it's two things. One, I do think there is an influence of the cinematic vocabulary on comic book mm. form, and it's interesting. I see this when I teach comics with my students, where they don't necessarily know how to read Watchmen, not because they haven't read comics. But because the layout of contemporary comics is much more focused on big compositions, not individual panels. So you get a lot more splash pages, I feel like, now than you used to. And again, it's it's kind of designed to highlight spectacle in a different way, in, in ways that I feel like panel breakdowns in the past were designed more to tell story. So that's one issue. The second thing is, is a lot of this decompression of of set pieces of plot has to do with how comic books are sold now, which is trade paperbacks, right? So you'll have a story that could have been told in two or three issues monthlies in the past, but because they want to sell a trade paperback that's re- that's united around one story arc, it's kind of like the Netflix syndrome where it's like, we're going to take three hours of movie and draw it out to 12 <laughs> right. Um, so essentially, in order to sell trade paperbacks that are more cohesive, they kind of allow the creators more time to kind of unpack these moments. So I think it's, it's the two of those things together. An audience that wants more kind of visual, spectacular, 
um, comic books and also this idea that in order to kind of get them to buy them, you have to have that payoff and the, the publishing format's different. Yeah, just actually just on that issue of kind of spectatorship or readership or, or um, I mean, I, I was reminded, I think, of, of and I think you mentioned that you watched the sort of extended and I should sort of uh, put a little footnote. There are many versions of the film and, and I had the had the pleasure of watching the three hours plus version, um, which I think you said that, that you watched again um, recently. So. I, I had a question actually, which is about is Watchmen a critique slash examination of, of the superhero adaptation or the superhero or the comic book? And, and you mentioned about the kind of psychological repression and it did certainly feel like a very different um, rep, form of representation. But um, the issue of whether or not that Watchmen is is kind of reflexive about comic book spectatorship. One of the things obviously that marks out this um, ultimate edition that the longest version is this sort of interlude um, or the, the series of interludes of, a, of um, uh, a kind of animated short, well not an animated short, but like a, a slightly different version of the film that includes um, that sort of 20, 25 minute um, animated film, but also has a, a, a little boy reading a comic book. Um, yeah. And obviously you kind of, the film builds in comic book readership and so forth, but there are lots of lines in the film, you know, I'm not a comic book villain. Um, and even <laughs> there's a gang, you're, you're reading a comic book. Um, and then they kind of use the fact that they are not comic book fans as, as a marker of their own villainy. So there's lots of moments that gesture to the act of reading and, and enjoying and um, yeah, engaging with comic books. It's, it's obviously a fictional world that in which comic books are used for entertainment and so i just wonder whether that that extra version or that additional um kind of version of the film uh, with those little moments where you have a character bernard i think his name is bernard yeah um the little boy who's who's um reading tales of the black freighter like is that is that part of what that extended edition does for you it sort of feeds in that or, or fuels that reflexivity a little bit more because it seems I, I agree the film seems to be kind of working through uh, the idea of the superhero and the idea of a comic book adaptation at the same time so i, I think it again depends on what version you're watching right yeah. so like when i first saw black freighter there was this interesting approach when the watchman film was coming out where it was done much more like a transmedia experience right so like before the movie came out you could buy or rent the Watchmen motion comics on DVD if you wanted to get caught up and you hadn't read the book and you wanted to see these really horrible short cartoon versions of it. Yeah. Um, and then I think Black Freighter came out on DVD before the film did. Right. Like, so you could rent the Black Freighter, but you didn't have it in the context of the film. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that kind of challenges it a little bit. So I'm like, if you just watch Black Freighter as a short, you don't really get anything out of it. At the same time, watching the ultimate cut, which for I think at the first time last night, I didn't necessarily think it was particularly successful at trying to do, or at least doing what the book does. Mm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Watchmen, the comic book, is so thoughtful in how it's trying to use comic book form to challenge your expectations of the genre right mm -hmm. so at the back of every issue you get the back matter you get like a segment from uh hollis mason's book or you get the black freighter intertwined right or you get um, Oz, um ozymandias's marketing catalog right or rorschach's uh psychological profile 
And I realized watching the ultimate cut that one without the squid, without Max Shea, without all of that information that essentially tethers the black freighter in as this more dominant subplot, it just feels strange. And it doesn't have the payoff that the book has because of those other changes and because of the decision. I, I don't know how you would adapt the back matter as it is, but there's no, there's no context for what you're really watching. Right. So the only real payoff that the black freighter has in the context of the ultimate cut is how it brings out certain parallels thematically in the mystery plot. Right. And watching the black freighter pieces in the film last night, I was really kind of confused because I always felt like the black freighter in the context of the comic book was trying to draw a parallel between the captain in Ozymandias, right? Where it's like, oh, here's this guy who's scared of something. He's going to do something horrible, but he's operating out of fear. So we kind of sympathize with him, right? Mm. At least that's that's kind of what I always felt like the Black Freighter was trying to accomplish. Yeah. And then watching it in the film, there was much more of an emphasis on iconography and lines of dialogue that I don't think were in the actual book that makes the the parallel closer to Rorschach. Where Mm. he's got... I think a sail with the with a Rorschach kind of esque design on it, and then he has a line about ink being black, or you know that the the ink was black in my eyes, or something like that. Where yeah, I was yeah. like, I was like, I get what you're doing, and the way it's intercut in the middle of the film, it kind of parallels that because essentially, I think it's cross cut with the moment that Rorschach's getting arrested. Yes, but then at the at the end of the film, yeah, it starts being intercut with what Ozymandias is talking about, and I was like, yeah, this just this just does, doesn't work. Yeah, no, it I, really I, doesn't. That parallel, I think, to Rorschach, yeah, I because I think the comic book, the the the, the sort of newsstand sequences that set up those um, interludes are there's a there's one of the moments just as Rorschach's getting arrested, um, the newsstand owner sort of says, yeah, he's one of my regulars, and you first see him with the sign kind of walking around, and so I think they're trying to create, yeah, you're right, a sort of parallel with him through those sequences, but then later on when it's revealed. Uh, who the kind of villain is and and stuff. I yeah, I think you're right. The the positioning of those intercut sequences um, are, are tell us there seems to be a sort of an uneasiness perhaps to to where the parallel is supposed to be or where we're supposed to find the um, parallel as a spectator. And even tonally, I was going to say like there's moments where it'll go from the black freighter back into the film. I think it's the scene where John and Laurie are making love where it's this really abrupt. It's a, it's a weird cut where I was like watching it with my wife where I was like, Jesus, like this, like derails the movie. Like it's this, it's this like cut from like a serious moment in black freighter to like her, like having an orgasm where I was like, what the, what the hell is this doing here? Like this just, this doesn't work. I, I remember, um, yeah, I remember laughter in the cinema, actually, at that moment. The sort of, you know, it's kind of almost Austin Powers gag-esque, um, if I remember rightly. Um, I'm going to confess, I had no idea what any of you just said for about seven minutes. Um, and I think that's because I didn't watch the, the long cut. I watched the two-hour, 45-minute cut. Although, I've got to be honest, having seen the film three times now, I'm not convinced that that wasn't all just pertinent information to a plot I watched, but a few hours ago um and, and i'm trying to turn this into something constructed and i've and i've worked it out don't worry lads um i'm um 
I'm interested in how penetrable the film is and whether that matters. Because I think there's something interesting going on in that it sounds like the relationship a lot of people have with the Watchmen thing, you know, that the sort of cross-media franchise is now, is really enhanced by this sort of uh, dialogue between different forms, different media, um, and a sort of um, a context that swells all things so that one thing is never um, good enough on its own, but to almost, you know, in the sort of Henry Jenkins' convergence sense of, of, of media, like it all works together um, but is and is more than the sum of its parts. And, and I'm reminded of a, of a piece um, that Stephen Shaviro wrote on Southland Tales, which mm. is another very strange movie and, and not completely... Um, dissimilar actually to this and and sort of talking about how Southland Tales is almost a sort of new kind of post-cinematic aesthetic in that it's designed to be seen not on its own but as part of this sort of fragmented you know um, contemporary viewership so I don't know if this has got uh, you know this does if this takes us away from the subject of, subject of adaptation but from what I can tell in the conversation we're having here is the comic almost itself kind of um, transmedial in the way it sort of plays mm-hmm. with different forms and things. No, absolutely, it absolutely okay. is. Which I, which I think is was a missed opportunity. And I think, and again, I think this is where now, if you were to like go back in time or or, or give Zack Snyder another crack at it, I think he would have an easier time of doing so. I think, I, I think the TV show, the the Watchmen sequel, actually did this well, where it was essentially like, hey, we're going to do that back matter stuff that the that the comic did but we're going to put it on a trans we're going to put it on a website and they're going to do this kind of transmedia extension of it um and then there was the podcast and the the podcast with uh damon lindelof and um what the showrunner from chernobyl kind of clued people in and provided this annotation so i think audiences now are a little more keen on something like that knowing to look elsewhere for that material um, whereas in Watchmen, it was like, we got to stick it all in this one house. We have to stick it all in mm. this, this film and maybe people will pick up the black freighter. Um, although it was interesting. I was reading a, a piece with Zack Snyder where he was like, yeah, you know, as much as I like the ultimate cut, I also realized it doesn't, he's not, it's not his preferred version. He just was like, I, I tried to do it and it didn't work and it didn't work for a reason. And I'd much prefer people watch the director's cut. <laughs> so I, I, I think he kind of realized he, he was kind of frustrated with the limitations of what people would make sense of the film for, for the same reasons that the, the Wachowskis had trouble with the matrix, right? This idea of kind of expanding the canvas of the story beyond the film was still a relatively new idea in 2009. Mm. And it, it asked different things of different audiences before there were the kind of tools that we have now that can kind of, you know, get people in the know. I mean, they were there, but you had to be in a very kind of specialized in group to kind of know them. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's a helpful way of thinking about the book is that it is this kind of complex organism where the more you know about comics and the more you know about the history of the medium, the deeper your enjoyment will be. I remember, I think it was the, it, Watchmen was one of the first books I read when I got back into comics. And it was like, you know, the first time I read it, I'm just kind of taken in by the mystery plot, which I think a lot of people are. Yeah. But you're not really thinking about the themes and how it's, it's playing with, the format until you kind of have that extra degree of knowledge. So is 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 a good adaptation of Watchmen an adaptation that requires a transmedial 
you know um approach to understanding it is is it actually kind of part of part of adapting watchmen from the page to 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 screens and i'll use plural deliberately to to try and you know it's better to make it to make it across different media rather than to as you say try and pack it all into a a film i th- i think so i mean you you might be able to do it in such a way like again i i think the tv show does a really interesting job of this by using TV in the show. So I don't know if you guys have seen the HBO series, but essentially there's this, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a dig at Ryan Murphy and it's called like American superhero story or something where it's essentially the history of the Minutemen shot in the style of a Zack Snyder film. And you're watching this and the violence is over the top and it's very, you know, 1980s conservative and it's ideology. Um, but as the show progresses, it's, it's, basically destroying this myth that the show and uh that the show within the show created so there's this kind of extra degree of meta-ness to it where it's getting you to think more critically about what you're reading whereas i felt like the black freighter material in the watchman film never really does that like it just can't because you're missing so much context around it Hi everybody, just pausing the podcast for a second. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Drew Morton discussing comic book adaptations and uh, Watchmen. Uh, we thought we'd just um, pause though to let listeners know on what you know other suggestions we had because we had loads of suggestions this week for favourite comic book film, favourite graphic novel, so it would be a shame not to share them and just give a quick sort of snapshot and perhaps um, set up a future episode. So uh, we've had suggestions from our various platforms. Remember, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Twitter, um, and you can also email us. And the way to do that on all those things is to find the handle FANANIMRESEARCH, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. That works on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Twitter. It's also our email address, FANANIMRESEARCH at gmail.com. Let us know uh, what you think. People have been doing that this time on Facebook. We've had Stefan Collignon who's a scholar on animation, um, and he suggested um, Asterix and Obelix Mission Cleopatra um, as an interesting choice, uh, and he says it's an interesting choice, and it's probably a great film because it's a terrible adaptation in every way, um, and I think that means it's not necessarily visually um, interesting, but it is quite faithful in the sort of design of Asterix. I loved Asterix comics growing up as a kid, and I can remember seeing this and it did certainly I remember it looking like Asterix, but not feeling like Asterix. And that's probably an interesting thing we've already talked about on the podcast about the difference between an adaptation capturing its essence and, and capturing its iconography. Yeah, um, there's actually a recent computer animated film adaptation of Asterix, so maybe that's uh, that's what wanted to do as well. Um, yeah, we also do some Asterix sometime. <laughs> and we also had um, a suggestion from one of our previous podcast guests um, on Instagram, uh, Andrew Whitehurst, who suggested uh, Mario Bava. So Mario Bava is an Italian filmmaker known largely for horror, actually, but um, has recommended his film uh, Danger Diabolic um, because it manages to have a comic sensibility without just aping its styling. And a little look at the film, I wasn't familiar with it, um, but it has. Uh, Adolfo Selli, who uh, was in a Bond movie, so that's our obligatory Bond reference, um, and it seems to be a 1960s action film. So if you're into your Italian cinema, um, you like a bit of Barber horror, um, then do check out Danger Diabolic. Sold. Um, <laughs> on Reddit, we had loads and loads and loads of suggestions on Reddit this week. This obviously was a hot topic, and I and we haven't got time to read them all out. Um, but thank you to everyone who participated in that. Um, but I will read one final one out from uh, Snotso Goodmans, and kudos on the on the on the login name. Um, and I thought I'd just read this one out because it's a slightly different adaptation, perhaps we might expect. Um, and he says Road Perdition as an example of a good mm. um, graphic novel adaptation. Um, 
And he says, although it pretty loosely adapts a lot of the character names and story beats and gets much further from the real story of John Looney and the Gable murder uh, that Collins based the comic on, it's hard to um, go wrong with a prohibition gangster story about a father-son road trip with some religious allusions. Yeah, and finally, we've got another um, contribution from a previous podcast guest, Raina Dennison, who's given us a wealth of examples. I'm going to pick out um, three or four uh, because they're sort of films, I think, that have certainly been floating around Alex and I's mind as we've, we've sort of thought about where to take fancy animation in terms of our podcast. Um, so Akira, uh, Akira, obviously uh, one of the perhaps most canonical anime films um, of their 80s. I think it's something that we'll inevitably have to touch on. Certainly we've veered towards fantasy's relationship to, to sci-fi when we did Tron and, and so Akira I think is a is something that we'll definitely do in a future episode. Um, Ghost in the Shell as well I think recently remade of course with um, Scarlett Johansson so Ghost in the Shell is in 1995 sort of cyberpunk style uh, Japanese anime uh, and then Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Now, this is obviously a film that touches on perhaps some of our uh, Ghibli conversations. It's sort of an unofficial Ghibli, if you like. Um, but again, I think would work really nicely with some of the discussions we previously had. And then another really interesting adaptation that um, Rain has kindly offered is A Silent Voice, a film that wasn't particularly familiar to me. But that's a 2016 Japanese uh, sort of animated teen drama um, and yeah based on a manga of the same name so thank you Raina for um, and thank you everybody for some for some wonderful suggestions there's a whole other podcast to do on manga adaptation and, yeah. and perhaps perhaps that'll be an, another listener choice down the road Raina by the way uh, contact us by the old-fashioned way of emailing us so that is allowed you can do that too um, we have to set up next month's uh, theme, Chris, so that listeners can suggest their favourite example. So we're trying to tie this in, but yet leapfrog from um, today's example, which was Watchmen. Um, so what theme have we come up with this time? Well, we've decided to sort of take a little bit of a cue from the film's narrative in terms of its uh, uh, use of fictional worlds. So loosely, I think we're, we're looking really at alternative presence, films that set up um, alternative versions, I think, um, but presence, uh, an alternative narrative, perhaps obviously Watchmen deals um, with an alternative uh, real world history set largely in, in the mid 1980s. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're really interested, I think, in, in fictional worlds. Um, but we have some we have some rules. Well, yes, we thought, you know, why make this nice and easy? We need to complicate it a bit more and, and, and essentially give everyone a chance to be really obsessive and pedantic about this. So here are the rules. Um, you cannot pick a film that features an alternative world. OK, so Oz or Wonderland or Narnia, these kind of films, I suppose you could argue they take place in an alternative present because they have a narrative that involves going back and forth between our world and another world where things are happening. But we're not allowing that. That's not what we mean. Um, and we're also not allowing parallel worlds. So this is something like It's a Wonderful Life. So a movie which sets up one world and then goes into another world for some reason. We want a, world, a movie set entirely in alternative present. And it goes without saying that I don't want future films and I don't want past films. No 10,000 years BC, no 2001 A Space Odyssey, an alternative present. And I think listeners are going to have a lot of fun both finding examples that we can't think of um, and also trying to break those rules. So, yeah, please do get in touch with your alternative presence. Uh, you can drop us a line on social media. Um, you can uh, find us via the website. Um, or, as Alex said, you can contact us via good old-fashioned email. Um, please get in touch with your alternative world choices. But for now, let's get back to the podcast and to Drew Morton and our discussion of Watchmen. I had a... I suppose on that, on that note of, of sort of transmedia and and obviously you cited the matrix which is obviously um 
uh, what Jenkins uses to kind of talk about that movement of of narratives between and through and across um, certain kinds of media media products. There's a I was trying to find some academic writing. I was looking at academic writing beyond your own work, Drew, on on Watchmen, and and there's an article by Bob Rehack who's written on special effects and actually talks about. Um, he talks about uh, Watchmen as this sort of uh, incomplete experiment in hyper-faithful adaptation. And it reminds us that Hollywood's state of the art is never just a performance of technological prowess, but instead a complexly over-determined mutation of text across time and intermedial borders, balancing the preservation of some original artistic aura with the pursuit of new forms of cultural resonance and relevance. And the argument that he's making is actually in relation to 9-11 and how, um, from what I can gather, that the film changed the comic book on the basis of 9-11, that the original comic book ended in a way that would have been too close to uh, kind of an American society. You know, 9-11 was less than 10 years old. And, you know, there comes that interesting point where at what, at what moment does Hollywood start making movies about that? You know, you get uh, World Trade Center and um, 2006, I think. But actually that sort of stands alone, really. And, and then you get United 93 and so forth. But I just, yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about the shift from the film you know the, the shift that the film makes from the comic book but it seems part of what the film tried to do was sort of take a, a detour and and, and rehack says you know the twin towers are never foregrounded the novel per se but they do appear prominently in the movie actually and i did notice it a couple of times um and so is that does that sort of ring true that the the watchman changed the film sort of it's, it is a, a sort of interesting ending and I still don't quite know what to, to make of it, but it seems like that's where we see a moment of sort of deviation from the source text. Okay. Two, that's, that's two really interesting questions. I think the first part, I don't necessarily think it's trying to avoid nine 11 iconography. And I actually think if you look at a lot of superhero movies from that time period, they are directly trying to engage with, 9-11 and the war on terror and i think like the dark knight does that pretty obviously with the, you know the the surveillance program and the joker and the kind of borrowed imagery from those al-qaeda beheading videos that we were seeing in the early 2000s yeah. um there are so many of those films where you see a, a, a building topple and people in the streets covered in you know debris and smoke and things like that so i think that's being dealt with it may have not been dealt with in the immediate aftermath i remember they had to cut the twin towers out of i think it was the first spider-man movie yeah. Yeah, there was this yeah. discussion about if you keep it in or not um but i i don't think watchmen the film was trying to avoid that iconography i think by introducing the squid it, at least if, if my memory serves right um this was snyder's point was like to, to put the squid in that movie you really needed like another hour of of film right you have to set up the whole island where ozymandias has max shea who wrote the tales of the black freighter uh and he's designing this thing and there's a lot more foreshadowing you have there's a lot more kind of scaffolding you have to do in terms of narrative and i think he was just like i don't have time i don't mm -hmm. have time to do that it's this kind of weird um plot device at the end to just come up with the sci-fi thing like you know i need something that's a little more elegant and already built into the plot i'm just going to use dr manhattan and I, I i actually thought it was a fairly elegant solution to the problem of not making a four or five hour version of watchmen uh when i saw it at the time i didn't think it betrayed manhattan as a character um and i didn't think it really betrayed the themes it was kind of one of those moments and and a 
adaptation where, again, this kind of goes back to the first question you asked, where it's like, what does faithfulness mean? Yeah. And at the end of the day, I feel like the Watchmen film does know what themes it's trying to bring out. It's just successful at some and less successful at others. But I, I don't think it's thematically a betrayal of the text or anything like that. I think perhaps we should move on to talk about, um, well, have we talked about the film yet? We sort of have and we sort of haven't, a bit like watching it. But um, uh, <laughs> I thought perhaps we could talk about the, the visuals because you, you mentioned the point of, you know, faithfulness of adapt- adapting the plot. But it seems like a lot of people that love the movie um, drew attention to a off-sighted um, news source was that basically Snyder sort of pledged to use the comic as a storyboard. And perhaps this comes back to some of the, the relationship between cinema and 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 comics that we've, we've sort of, you know, jumped about around um, already, which is, um, you know, so, so you know, visually I'm given to understand there's lots of, uh, you know, references to individual panels. Um, I liked your description of sort of space and time in the comic and the focus on moments and jump between moments. And I, and I take your point about sort of the development of that. I almost think, the first sort of opening, you know, uh, title sequence with um, Dylan's uh, Times Are Changing, where they sort of get these almost tableaus of different moments. It's a very, um, you know, um, staid and and um, and focused and uh, aesthetic that's that's perhaps reminiscent of of what you're, what it sounded like you were talking about there. So perhaps we could just move on to talk about sort of you know what 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 visually Snyder's doing here in terms of how the film adapts the comic aesthetic. Yeah, so I think, again, if you look back at the way Snyder talked about it, he was very much like, I am using the book as a storyboard. He had, he hired, I think, a young animator to essentially turn it into an animatic. Yeah. And when he was doing both 300 and Watchmen, he always said that one of the biggest challenges is, again, that comic books give you moments and you have to find a way to get into the moment of that shot. Right, you have to have a beginning and ending to whatever frame you're being shown. And I feel like one of his techniques for doing this, particularly in Watchmen, is to use speed ramping. Hmm. So he'll start with something in regular motion and then he'll slow it down so that he can get the money shot that you saw in the comic book and then slowly speed things back up. And reading comic books of course you know time is is very kind of relative and and fluid in those right you can take your time lingering over a panel um bigger panels you know sometimes emphasize a bigger moment in plot sometimes they last longer than others right scott mcleod has written about how time in comics is really gnarly right where you can have a essentially a panel that has snapshots of a, of a second in it where other pieces in the same panel may take um you know a minute or two. Yeah, yeah. Like he's got this panel where someone's taking a picture and people are playing a game of chess in the same panel. And it's like, well, the time of that doesn't make any sense. And he's like, it, it doesn't it really doesn't have to. Um, and so I think Snyder's approach is to get to those moments, but to get to those moments, he has to use this really Baroque use of, of slow motion to get there. And well, I used to really enjoy it. And I used to think that was really cool looking and comparable to reading a comic. I realized watching it this last time that it really fundamentally changes the book in in a weird way. Um, In the book, right, these aren't, they're not superheroes, right? Aside from Dr. Manhattan, 
they're all regular people who dress up and they have a degree of prowess to them, yeah. but they're not Superman, right? They're, they're just, you know, they're smart people who can solve crimes, but they're fundamentally human, right? So by making them move so balletically and, you know, giving them the power, like in that comedian fight to like smash, a, a, isn't there like a marble island on that table where... <laughs> Ozymandias like punches his head down and like he breaks the like it's it's just kind of absurdly overpowered and it just it doesn't seem as grounded in in reality as the book is yeah where the book feels a little sloppier the book feels a little less elegant I don't know so it it, it kind of made it, it gave the the characters a power that they don't have in the book by photographing it that way yeah um i also think despite the fact that it is very faithful to certain compositions and faithful to certain um kind of layouts like i I think of often how the film will use um zooming out of certain objects in the same way that the comic would introduce a new issue so like um you see this i believe in the scene where they're at the comedian's funeral where it starts with the the close-up on the statue's face in the graveyard and it kind of moves backwards right um which is taken right from the book um the colors are different the colors are so different in the movie than they are in the book in the book you get a lot of reds and you get these yellows and watching the film again i was just like it's just teal it's just black and teal (laughs) which isn't the dominant color scheme of the the book very much at all um, and, and Moore and Gibbons will use different colors at different moments to kind of code flashbacks and to kind of braid in different stories like the Black Freighter. So I feel like Snyder, for as faithful as he is to certain aspects of the book's aesthetic, like compositions, he, he doesn't understand kind of what the, the small deviations he has to make to get into those compositions due to the themes and how the, the book uses other uh, compositional techniques that may not translate that well to film. Um, like I, I'm trying to think if that color scheme idea of like, because the book has these essentially like chess patterns, chessboard patterns of different color schemes at different moments. Um, and I just, yeah, you, I just don't see that in the film. I, as you were talking, I excited. I should also say I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this because I'm, I'm going mad with my notes here um, as you talk, Drew. So, so I've got my first note is uh, dead. I put Deadpool. That clearly is the opening sequence, you know, in terms of slow motion and mm-hmm. is kind of, it felt very, I was like, oh, okay, so that's what it's sort of, and I and I know that Alex has written on on, on Zack Snyder and Sucker Punch and slow motion, if I if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah, I, and you used earlier, uh, Drew, this idea of kind of the style of a Zack Snyder film, and obviously embedded within this process of adaptation that we've been discussing is exactly that, that kind of a particular kind of use of slow motion which which perhaps Alex can can kind of qualify. I mean something else I, I was thinking about when when you were talking about um I guess characters in the in the frame in the film and, and perhaps the style is um Deborah Tudor's written an article called The Eye of the Frog, which is essentially about uh moments where you can see simultaneous things that you'd never normally be able to see simultaneously, but because of digital aesthetics you can. Um and she kind of connects it up to a broader culture of the swipe, you know, the touch screen and how we everything is organized in a slightly different way. We swipe between screens on a tablet and, and everything is sort of it becomes simultaneous. We, we don't have to do much in order to, to see things from a similar perspective. And she uses an example from, I think it's the, the, the 
the Ang Lee Hulk film where where a camera zooms out, you know, have these impossible um, digitally assisted moments that actually tie back to because you use the word baroque actually and the and 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 baroque and and certainly European art history has obviously provided or seems to have provided a very valuable critical language for kind of qualifying new media technologies and and there's a repeated turn I think to the baroque to describe the pleasures and and sorts of modes of spectatorial address that are made by this kind of um, yeah bombastic contemporary Hollywood um, uh, and I also have I've also got a note about I'm trying to think because we've talked previously about superhero movies and William Brown's work on super cinema and it reminded me when you were talking about the heroes themselves that the Watchmen apart from um, Doctor Manhattan who has the only sort of well he has explicitly superhero powers they're just ordinary people who sort of dress up and and so they behave they're like batman rather than superman yeah you said they are and and william brown and we've talked about this i think on on previous episodes this idea that superhero movies themselves in terms of digital technology um films are often like superman but pretend to be clark kent so they they're produced digitally but they pretend to look like live action or they pretend to look like um photography by hiding their digital and then you then you might get films that are and I think this is an example of the kind of opposite of that. It wears its digital on its on its sleeve. It mm-hmm. doesn't hide it behind. We talked about it, I think, when we did an episode on, on Black Panther and and how what Black Panther behaves like a superhero movie because Wakanda hides its its digital technology behind a veil as a third world country. Yeah. And so, what you were saying there about you know the the, the characters or the Watchmen themselves are often not you know they are not uh superheroes in the sense of having biological changes that allow them to be heroic um there's a nice counterpoint there to to the, to a film that in no way tries to hide its its sort of super super identity um i don't really know where i'm going with this but i just found it really interesting <laughs> no and i think that's absolutely the case and and that's what my book was very much concerned with is essentially like there was this small cast of of filmmakers who was interested who were interested in in making these kinds of comic book movies that were adapting the aesthetics and i mean there were limitations to that essentially at the end of the day where i think one was a, a certain kind of critical vocabulary whereas you know i think some readers were like or or some viewers were confused as to why scott pilgrim looked the way it did a little bit yeah um but it, it's it also it costs a lot of money to make a movie that looks that way or in or at least to own that it looks that way and i i think that you know bringing attention to you know being self-reflexive about the different kind of different media you're using um draws people out of the movie and at a time when the dominant was very much that marvel nolan aesthetic of highlighting realism it was this kind of strange counterpoint so i i I don't think people were necessarily ready for it if that makes sense whereas i feel like given movies and this goes back to that that argument i was making at the beginning about time right you need time and a certain cultural vocabulary to get this kind of reflexive stuff right to put watchmen out in 2009 or 2010, 10 years after the first X-Men movie, it would be like if you put out Blazing Saddles in 1950. <laughs> right? It, it, it's just like, it's, it's, it's this weird thing where like viewers are like, what the hell is, what, what is this thing, right? Whereas now we've seen with movies like Deadpool and the Spider-Verse that 
audiences know what a multiverse is now. They know that there are different manifestations of what these superheroes look like. They're willing to kind of deal with these inconsistencies that show the seams that we're talking about in a way that they weren't willing to 10 years ago. And so I think if there was a Watchmen movie now, it would play a lot better because there is a certain expectation or a certain literacy that allows that to play. Mm. So it, it seems that, that obviously Watchmen is a really good, you know, the fact that you, when we started kind of talking about it, you were, you were this, this sort of wave of experimental classical and then the sort of refinement of that, that Watchmen seems a really important film to be able to map the kinds of, you know, if we think about, you know, histories of genre criticism and the peaks and troughs of genres and the, the way that they move in and out and they are historically contingent and all these kinds of things. Um, it, yeah, you're right that films like Watchmen and, and it, it's, it's an interesting... Watch, well, you, you mentioned Kick-Ass and it was like Watchmen, Kick-Ass. Yeah. Those come out, and, but they're both doing the same thing, which is kind of thumbing their nose at the superhero genre. And, it, you know, that only works if you know what the superhero genre is. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the inevitability of... Once and and, that, and I think that's why I, I I noted down that release of that spoof movie superhero movie from twenty uh, two thousand and eight, which I think is trying to do that, but in a different way. So those that sort of that that goes towards kind of parodic extremes, but it, but in doing so, crystallizes certain conventions of a genre that in the previous eight years had been gra- kind of gathering momentum in the ways that we've we've discussed. So yeah, I hadn't sort of thought too much about the importance of of watchmen within this sort of broader historical context um well and i i think that i think that applies to a lot of superhero movies like i I, i'm far more critical of marvel movies than i am of dc ones um and it's and it's not because i don't it's not because i think dc universe movies are better made i just think they try more interesting things so like i'll give you a classic example um so many of the Marvel movies look the same to me, um, right? Whereas I feel like the two major deviations, maybe three major deviations within the family of MCU movies, um, which all kind of look like Jason Bourne movies with the with Nolan and, you know, beautiful CGI backdrops. But I, I can't really remember a lot of great action sequences from those 20 plus movies, right? But it's the movies that play with our perceptions of space and time that I do remember. So something like, you know, Doctor Strange, yeah, where you're having these kind of fantastic battles. Or is as much as the movies aren't great, the Ant Man movies, because because of the comedy that comes out of like having the fight in the guy's briefcase with the iPhone and the Pez machine or whatever the hell is rolling around in that that briefcase, <laughs> yeah. right? That's that's an interesting change. Whereas what I think is interesting about Zack Snyder's DC movies, or at least Batman versus Superman, I don't think it's a great film. But I do think one of the things that comes out of how he depicts violence and action in that film that I find really interesting is that he deals with the aftermath. And he deals with the toll it takes on bodies. So I think of um, Scoot McNary's character in there, who's in a wheelchair and he's trying to essentially hold Batman and Superman liable for like what happened to his, the reason he's in the wheelchair is essentially because they like knocked a building down or something when he was fighting Zod, I think. Mm. Right. But that's one of the few movies that actually pays attention to the consequences of all this. Right. Because in most of these movies, just like you're saying about Watchmen, you see the spectacular, you see 
these scenes that go on for indeterminate amounts of time. And then, you know, some people get broken bones or some faceless villains die, but you never really see any sort of consequence. It, it, it goes back to what you said, again, right at the start about these sort of psychologically repressed heroes. And the, there isn't, you talked about the aftermath and the damage on bodies. And, and, and perhaps while the film doesn't, while Watchmen doesn't do that in the same way, you know, I appreciated its, its sort of puzzle film aesthetic you know the shifting between chronologies and the use of voiceover and and uh you know that comes from uh, rorschach's notebook but it also comes from the origin story of, of dr manhattan and, and so i appreciated the sort of shifting chronology of it um but equally yeah the sort of um the fact that there wasn't a there wasn't a super villain per se you know there isn't a joker there isn't a penguin there isn't a riddler there is a it kind of comes from within. And I liked the fact that the film was set, you know, it's it, the, the title of it is Watchmen and it is about their relationships, both between each other, but also their relationships to the Minutemen as well. So they're the people that came before them, whether it's parents, whether it's, you know, sure. it's, it's, um, and I, I keep forgetting my, my, I've gone all Alex and not being able to remember the characters' names, but, um, Malin Ackerman's character, <laughs> uh, Laurie Jupiter. So her, her relationship to, yeah. um, her mother, but also her relationship to the comedian Edward Blake. So there's 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 a lot going on in terms of the characters' relationships, and I and I liked that. That even though it has this sort of bombastic style and and is very Zack Snyder in lots of ways, actually what what really supports it is is sort of character relationships and yeah the the, the psychological to go back to what you said this sort of psychological damage of bodies when we first meet Edward Blake in the sort of opening sequence he's i didn't recognize him as jeffrey d morgan i was kind of looking and it's this sort of washed out um ex-superhero and so yeah I, I think that that's exactly right the sort of the the damage and the labor that has gone on to these superhero hero bodies that you perhaps don't see in other kinds of superhero films i um i think that the time is starting to get away from us and i'm not planning on doing an extended or ultimate edition of this so um it might it might be time it might be time to sort of i don't know do a quick mop up um and see if there's anything else that's that needs to be talked about from for me the only thing well the not needs but the one thing that i we haven't really touched on that i'd that i'd quite like to touch on is the use of pop songs um because it just struck me this time that that as much as um one of the recurring tropes of, of this sort of style of filmmaking is this is the slow motion which we have talked about the other is this sort of pairing of supposedly you know cool montage sequences with a you know a rather eclectic but kind of you know relatively grand in the sort of 60s 70s uh you know pop pop songs um so i don't really have anything particularly insightful to say about it so i'm hoping either of you do or or drew because i think perhaps i'd be interested in obviously that's something that you can't take from a movie is the sonic quality of of these things but yet there's something very um pop culturey that feels quite comicky about you know interspersing a sex sequence on top of a rocket to leonard cohen or using times <laughs> there are a changing with with dylan and, and all these kind of stuff going on and do you have any thoughts on on the film's use of pop songs i it, there are two things that I think do not work in Watchmen. Uh, two failings of Zack Snyder. I don't think it's the screenplay. I, I think the screenplay works. I think his directions of the actors is inconsistent. I feel like Malin Ackerman, and this isn't her fault. I've seen her perform fairly well in other films. Um, and it, maybe it's a problem with the source material, too, is it doesn't quite get Laurie as well as it gets some of the other characters. 
it's everyone feels like they're acting in a different movie <laughs> so patrick wilson seems like you know he's kind of low-key and understated and i mean yes i know they're all different characters but like the performance styles of a patrick wilson and a billy crudup are diametrically opposed to you know jeffrey dean morgan or um you know jackie earl haley who's great as rorschach but he is over the top right mm -hmm. like it's everything about it um so I, I kind of fault the performances or at least the direction of the performances and um the music choices and i i know a lot of them were baked into the book you know all along the watchtowers in the book and there's the different quotations that come up at the you know, we're, we're Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons will introduce the beginning of a quotation. Then you have to wait until the end of the book to get the full payoff and find out how it brings out pieces of the themes. But, you know, for every good choice that he makes, like, I, I think the times they are changing works really well at the beginning. And I think hallelujah does not. <laughs> and I think the, the cover of desolation row at the end of the movie is almost like it, it it's, you know, at the end of that movie, you've, you've taken this long journey especially if you watch the three and a half hour version and it's just this kind of obnoxious like it's the completely it's it's the wrong mood to end that film on um so i he just i i think he gets in his own way sometimes and i don't think at the end of the day a lot of those songs really bring out anything in the film in the way that the quotations that Moore uses is it it's it's interesting that you said about that they all feel like they're acting in different movies. So it feels like a, um, you know, it feels like a multiverse, but like Spider-Verse or something. They're all from different, they're all from different multiverses. They just happen to all be in the, in this, in this kind of Watchmen film because yeah, there, there's, I think, yeah, you're right. The, the sort of tone is a little bit, a little bit uneven. And some of the sequences that Alex, Alex sort of messaged me whilst he was watching the film going, I'd forgotten about the Leonard Cohen sex scene. And I was like, Oh, okay. Oh, right. I, that, there's a sentence. So there's, yeah, it's sort of yeah, tonally there are bits. I mean, I really liked the noir stuff, um, the sort of evocation of, of film noir, and uh, yeah, I thought kind of Billy Crudup. Yeah, the, I, I like the Tyler Bates yeah. score quite a bit, which you know it's got a lot of Blade Runner in there, but you know, like it it, it fits with the production design, which I think the film does really well. Um, is the costumes and what whatever Alex McDowell's budget was, I think they made the most of it in that film. But yeah, I, I do think some of the you know, do you, I mean, you didn't put all along the Watchtower in the Vietnam sequence, so I'll give you a little bit of credit. But you know, you, you, I think there's yes. Rise of the Valkyries, where it's it's like you know, we don't we don't know. Like the book's not a cliche. That's what's so great about it, right? It's playing with the cliches and undermining them. Don't be a cliche when you're trying to, you know, mm -hmm. critique them. I, I mean, I, I many other note, I guess, from the animation side is the um, is the representation of Doctor Manhattan. You know, this sort of as this, this sort of site of, of mm. cosmic force, if you like, um, the use of sort of face replacement technology, um, obviously that was originally developed for certain kinds of, of sort of stunt work and the, the use of his face on a, on a different kind of digital body. He's just kind of resizing and, and the manipulation of scale and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I thought his sort of his presentation as this um, supernatural body, I, I thought was was kind of largely su successful. But yeah, feels a little bit out of. In some ways, I guess if we're thinking about the the discrepancies or the the sort of tensions perhaps between the actors and the way that they're directed, it feels like different superhero m movies going on. Um, but yeah, um, I will I will stop talking at the risk of making, as Alex said, this podcast uh, an, an ultimate cut.
<laughs> Drew, is there anything else you'd like to sort of uh, mention, or is there, you know, is there any, what, what, is there any, you know, huge nuggets that we're missing? No, I don't think so. I do think on the the point of Crudup and yeah. his representation as Doctor Manhattan, I will say I think one of the best sequences in that film is the Doctor Manhattan vignette in the middle, where he oh, it shows yeah. his creation. It's it's Zack Snyder using the Philip Glass music, and yeah, it, but it works really, really well. And it was one of those moments where, when we were watching the three and a half hour version, my wife and I turned to each other and we're like, "Man, for as many weird decisions that this movie makes, <laughs> there are some really fantastic sequences in it." And it, you know, and and it goes back to that reception idea, right? Where it's like, you know, it's I don't think it deserves the level of hatred and vitriol it tends to get. Uh, in terms of being a you know unfaithful adaptation or Zack Snyder being Zack Snyder, I I, I think there's a lot in the film that mm. redeems what's there. But yeah, I would I would advise anyone who has not seen it, although I don't know why you'd be listening at this point if you haven't seen it, <laughs> um, stick with the director's cut because I think it flows a lot better than the other two. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, Drew, uh, where what Pete, we've been talking about your book around the edges? Is it available and ready to buy? Yeah, yeah. So it's in. Uh, you can get it on Kindle. You can get it digitally. You can get it uh, through paperback now, which is nice because I think the hardcover was like eighty five dollars for libraries or something. So. Yeah, you can get it uh, fairly cheaply. And I think, or at least at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the University Press of Mississippi was doing a uh, 50% off sale or some significant discount on orders directly from them. So you might be able to get something cool through them. Um, And one other quick plug. Please do, yeah. Coming soon from the University Press of Mississippi. Uh, I am editing a book on the Watchmen TV show and the Doomsday Clock sequel series. So that'll be coming out sometime hopefully in 2021. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and and I think Alex mentioned at the start, but yeah, do check out the review of um, Panel to the Screen on the on the website. Uh, as I said, Alex said, a very favourable re- review and kind of goes through some of the things um, and, 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 and talks a little bit more about um, Dick Tracy. So there you go. Thanks for coming on the show and, and thanks for responding well, thank you to guys our so much for having suggestion. Um, a quick bit of admin to wrap up and Drew, you can help us with this. This is going to put you on the put you on the spot. Um, you haven't we haven't rehearsed this, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so we're um, uh, we're asking for another listener suggestion for next month, and we thought we'd try and sort of you know um, go one more quantum leap further. So we and, and tie it somehow to this episode. So we thought we'd ask for our favorite or your favorite film or television show set in an alternative present now there's a risk we can all get very pedantic and geeky about this and i'm delighted to do so with the three of you right now so we're looking for a film set in a present that is alternative to ours but the film has to be set in that present so what i don't want are films which which enter into what ifs i don't want an it's a wonderful life and i don't want um a wizard of oz because that's an alternative world and i don't want a future and i don't want a past but i want a film set in an alternative present um drew putting you on the spot can you think of a good example of an alternative present movie that our listeners might want to think about it's a terrible thing to do to the guest alex that's that's a really hard one because i'm trying to think of one yeah no that's that's tough that's really tough uh yeah i mean i i've i've not seen it but i i'm i'm on of the understanding that they're going to do a Hulu or Netflix series on what would have happened if Hillary had won the election. I think I saw. I, I don't know if that's out yet or not, but yeah, it's just wow. my heart isn't in it to watch that right now. Although I guess that there's there's one that would probably work as The Handmaid's Tale, right? 
Okay, that's a good one. Thanks, Drew. I put you on the spot there. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one for me. I think uh, does oh, yesterday yeah. count, Chris? The Beatles. Yeah. Uh, yes. It. Yes. Well, I suppose it. It would do. It, it's a fiction. It's a kind of quite unquote normal fiction film that is parallel to our real world, and then there is a moment that changes the course of the, and then we we kind of enter into a an alternative space, but an alternative present. So it, it's not an Oz like. It's certainly a move, isn't it? Rather than rather than Watchmen, which is set entirely in an alternative. Yeah, I, mean, I, I can I can think of none um, at, this, at this moment. So thanks for that. So um, yeah, I, I... well, something like Man in the High Castle that would work. The t- the Amazon television series. Um, that's a. Is that contemporary though, or is that set historically? I'm I think it's set. Well, now you're now you're putting me on the spot. I think it's set contemporary, but you know, uh, if if things had panned out differently. Um, Sure. Let the arguments begin. Yes. Uh, you can um, you can argue with us about what an alternative present looks like on Twitter, um, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Reddit, uh, and you can email us to shout at us in person. That would be even better. And you can do all of those things by using the handle fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, and at gmail.com if you want to email us. You can also contact us through the website. Um, we will have a big argument in a month about what constitutes an alternative present, but we need your suggestions um, first, so please do get them in. Drew, thank you so much for um, coming on the show and talking to us about Watchmen. I think it really helped me unpack the movie, and I'm sure it will help um, listeners who are ever studying it or just want to understand it a bit more. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Uh, Chris, I'll see you. I'll see you for another argument next time. You set in an alternative, in an alternative <laughs> world. An alternative present. Um, take care, listeners, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Now I've heard there was a secret. David played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you?